is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. We got a lot to talk about today. Um, I mean, I, I touched on it last week as we looked at uh, a pro-life activist that was uh, had their home raided and they were arrested uh, by the FBI, DOJ, uh, bringing uh, charges against them. They were uh, they had over two dozen agents armed with uh, body armor on, arrested this man in front of his family, in front of his kids, uh, and and there's no case there. Uh, the the local prosecutor said as much. Uh, the, they, there was a civil uh, suit that was brought and it was thrown out by a judge, and and yet the FBI a year later uh, from the incident uh, that occurred decided to. Um, bring what what appears to be a SWAT team and arrest this man. And then we see more of that last week with uh, 11 or 12 protesters, uh, pro-life activists that were had their homes raided and they were arrested. And we'll get into that in a second. But but also we're seeing uh, the president, President Biden, uh, looked at 100 days since Roe was overturned and he's got some new measures. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting to me for for a long time. Uh Many said, well, well, Joe Biden is uh, is personally pro-life. He's Catholic. He's personally pro-life, but politically he believes that, you know, in pro-choice. And and then uh, literally up until uh, his his election as president. He still believed there needed to be restrictions on abortion. He's always argued that in, in his entire political career. He has said there needs to be restrictions on abortion. Now, he has argued that their abortion should be allowed in, in certain cases, in first and second trimester, and in, in life of the mother, rape, incest. But he has said that, that uh, there needs to be restrictions in the third trimester. He has said that tax dollars should not pay for abortion. He said that up until he was running for office for, for the president in, in uh, 2020. And... And literally, he came out and said the Hyde Amendment needs to stay in place. Tax dollars should not pay for abortions. And then overnight, because the far left attacked him, overnight he changed his position. He changed decades of a position overnight to, no, abortion shouldn't have any restrictions. Tax dollars should pay for it. And then over at Forbes uh, this past week, we see what his plan is moving forward. So President Joe Biden acknowledged the wide-ranging effects of the Supreme Court's overruling of Roe v. Wade in a speech last Tuesday. Approximately 100 days after the conservative-leaning court let states ban abortion and announced two new moves to help protect abortion access through his power to stop, stop state-level bans remains limited, though his power to stop state-level bans remains limited. Now, interesting, even in Forbes, they have to mention the conservative-leaning court. They can't just say the court decided they have to say conservative leaning because they again, why do they do that? Why do they throw that little adjective in there? Conservative leaning. Why they do that because they're trying to make you think and its readers think that the court is illegitimate. That's why they do it. They want to bring into some questions, bring some question into whether this court is legit or not. And that's what they've been doing with all these institutions. 
See, if, if conservatives do that, they're bad and they're a threat to democracy. If liberals do that, they're just trying to tell you something, right? That's what, that's what we're told in today's society. So we got to say it's a conservative-leaning court. It's illegitimate. Their votes don't matter. It's the same thing when you look at election. When conservatives question an election result, they're a threat to democracy. They're trying to overthrow the government. It's a coup. When liberals question an election result, Stacey Abrams still hasn't conceded her loss in Georgia. We have footage after footage after footage of her saying that the election was stolen from her in Georgia. Is she called a threat to democracy? No, she goes on The View. And she's interviewed by all the major cable outlets. And she gets all these uh, press requests. And she speaks at churches. And she does everything. And she's running for governor again. So... Hillary Clinton said the election was stolen from her. Is she a threat to democracy? You see, you've got to be able to see through the lines. Because both sides do it, no question. Both sides do it. You lose and you, you say it was stolen from me. That's just what politics do. The problem is that the larger narrative in our, in our society is when conservatives say that, they're a threat to democracy. When liberals say that, hey, we really need to look into what they're saying. We need a question. When a court makes a decision, they're now a conservative-leaning court, so clearly they're not legitimate. That's, that's the mindset that they want to push today. But here, here we go. So, again, over at Forbes, key facts. Biden speaking ahead of a meeting of his administration's Reproductive Rights Task Force emphasized Let's see, emphasized his commitment to abortion rights, telling Americans, quote, we're not going to step back from this. The Department of Health and Human Services will allocate more than $6 million in grant money to expanding reproductive health care access, the White House said Tuesday. HHS says the funding will be used for research grants to figure out how to expand family planning services and reduce teenage pregnancies. The Department of Education also sent guidance. Here, here's the thing for a second. I, I do want to point this out. When they say prevent teenage pregnancies, on the surface, we're like, yeah, we all want to prevent teenage pregnancies, right? I mean, we, we, we want to do that. Now, they would say abstinence is not one of those options. We don't want to teach them abstinence. We want to teach them how to have safe sex. But, but it, on the surface, all of us would say, yeah, we need to prevent teen pregnancy. That should be a, a motivation for everyone. But here's the difference. They would say abortion prevents teen pregnancy. Do you catch that? So abortion is a vehicle to prevent teen pregnancy. So, so it doesn't really prevent the pregnancy. It just ends the pregnancy. And then the, the teenager can go on with their life. That's what they would argue. They would argue that is a valid option to prevent teen pregnancy. Now, how do I know that? I know that because for a long time we've been told that in some parts of the world we have gotten rid of and eliminated Down syndrome. And again, on the surface, you're like, wow, what science have we advanced to, to make a move in that direction? Well, abortion, that's what they did. They aborted all the kids that had Down syndrome, or at least in the test results showed that they may or may not have Down syndrome. They just aborted those children. And then they can come out on the other side and say, look, we don't have anybody with Down syndrome. We prevented it. No, you aborted all of those children. You see, so you got to understand what language they are using. So when they say prevent teen pregnancy, 
abortion is a vehicle that they want to use to do that. The Department of Education also sent guidance to universities reminding them that they're obligated, obligated under federal law to protect their students from discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, including pregnancy termination, said Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. Uh, he said that Tuesday the administration had set up new resources to remind schools of their obligation under Title IX not to discriminate on that basis. That guidance comes after the University of Idaho faced scrutiny last week for telling employees that under state law, staff members cannot promote or provide abortions and that the university would no longer provide birth control access. Biden emphasized the best way to protect abortion access is through Congress passing new legislation, which would require voters to elect a Democratic majority to Congress in November. <laughs> including a Senate majority that will abolish the filibuster, saying the only way that legislation is going to happen is if the American people make it happen. So again, this announcement last week is about the midterms. Inflation's up. Record highs. Gas is up. Winter is coming. People see that the cost of the groceries are going up. Their heat bill's going to go up. Their gas bill's going to go up. All these things are going up. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to shift focus. We, let's get back and talk about abortion. No, they're just trying to shift. This is about the midterms. This is about elections. And, and they're wanting to abolish the filibuster. If they do that, I think they're going to regret that decision. But so, so be it. I, and again, I don't think they're going to win the, the Senate or the House. I think that is going to be go uh, conservative this in the midterms. But he also warned against the national 15-week abortion ban that Senator Lindsey Graham introduced in the Senate, warning Americans' right to choose will still be at risk, even if their states allow abortion. If that legislation passes, there's no pushing back from that. Now, old Joe Biden would have been fine with the 15-week ban. But 2022 Joe Biden needs abortion throughout nine months. Forbes continues, 30 million, that's approximately how many women of reproductive age live in a state that bans abortion, including bans after approximately six weeks of pregnancy, the White House noted on Tuesday. And the article goes on and on and on. But look, the, the, the goal here, and, and, and it's interesting that the Secretary of Education went further with this, uh, and, and I thought it was really interesting. And this is where I struggle. Okay, so people are like, hey, you know, they, they have their opinion, you have yours. But when the Secretary of Education says that students need abortion to thrive in school and life, I have a problem with that. And people wonder why we homeschool. But when the Secretary of Education says that in order for students to thrive and succeed, your daughters and sons need the ability to end the life of their unborn child. I have a problem with that. That's the message from Washington? That's the message from the administration? Hey, you know, if you want your kids to succeed, they need abortion. What are we doing with? What message are we telling the next generation? I mean, is the goal not to have more generations? You know, we're, 
The Wood family, we're abnormal. We have four children. And, and, and Secretary of Education is telling me that in order for my daughters and my son to thrive and succeed, they need abortion? Really? Obviously, they don't want to teach them values. They don't want to teach them about marriage. They don't want to teach them about abstinence. No, they just need abortion. And if they have abortion, they'll thrive and succeed. That should not be the message coming from Washington. You see, we're long past the moment where people are looking to shake hands with someone across the aisle. I'm not saying we can never get back there. But when the Secretary of Education is saying that my son and daughter need abortion to thrive and succeed, I, I can't, there's no middle ground there. I mean, wh- where am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do with that? Oh, I see where you're coming from. No, I don't see where you're coming from. In no shape, form, or fashion do I see where you're coming from. My kids don't need abortion to thrive and succeed. And so at some point, we, we have to recognize the language that's coming out here. And as we talk about abortion, and they try to you know scare you about uh, the federal law that would that Lindsey Graham is trying to bring forth—it's a 15-week ban. They're saying we don't need to codify that. Now we need to codify abortion. That, that's what they would argue. We need to codify Roe. We need to have a federal law that allows for abortion all the way up to nine months. That is what they desire. So when they say that I'm extreme, because I would want to go further than a 15-week ban, but I would take a 15-week ban, but I want to go much further than that. And they would say that I'm extreme. But they would argue you need abortion all the way up to nine months. And even in a botched abortion, you need to let that baby die because ultimately, you know, abortion, in order for abortion to be successful, it's got to end the life of a human. So their argument is even after it's born, yeah, just let it sit over there on the table. So as they looked at the 100 days since Roe being overturned, this is the message from the White House. And this is the message from the Department of Education. Your kids need abortion to thrive and succeed. That is their message. The question is, do we believe that message? I don't, but do you? We'll talk more when we come back. There was Jesus In the shadows of the alley So as we continue today, now I want to shift and and look at what we're seeing from the DOJ and the FBI and and, and this administration. Look, and and I know for some folks are like, why are you, it seems like you're talking, you know, a lot of politics. The midterms are coming up, so that's going to get some focus. But these are things that are happening in and around our country that should concern us. But for a Tennessean, look, I'm a Tennessean. I'm a pro-life activist. And and this, what I'm about to tell you, happened to folks that were praying and singing 
at an abortion clinic in Tennessee, in Middle Tennessee. So you have what happened last week, or, or, or the last couple of weeks. You had a uh, a pro-life advocate, sidewalk advocate, that got into a, a tussle with a pro-choice advocate because the pro-choice, pro-abortion advocate was harassing him and his son. So they got into a bit of a tussle. The pro-abortion activist, activist fell down, and then he said that he was hurt and harmed and all these things. The local prosecutor said that we have no case here. A civil suit was brought, and the judge threw it out. And then you fast forward a year later, and the FBI, DOJ come, and they raid this man's home and arrest him, the pro-life activist, in front of his family. And now we have this. This happened. Here's the thing. It is no coincidence that this is happening before the midterms. It is no coincidence that this happened a couple weeks from each other. And yet another show of force by the federal government against pro-life Americans, the FBI, with guns drawn, raided the home of 73-year-old Chester Gallagher to arrest him on charges of violating the Federal Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act for organizing and participating in a peaceful protest at a Mount Juliet, Tennessee abortion facility in March of 2021. Gallagher was not at home at the time, but his family was, and the FBI demanded to know his whereabouts, according to a report pro-life activist A.J. Hurley gave to Live Action News. The raid follows a federal indictment announced on October 5th by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Middle District of Tennessee. Gallagher has, was among 11 participants in the 2021 rescue described in the indictment. The oldest charged is 87-year-old Eva Edel of Aiken, South Carolina. The youngest is 24. The FACE Act was passed by Congress in 1994 in response to a series of protests at abortion facilities. Its language is more general than simply covering abortion, however. It prohibits physical obstruction, attempts to injure, intimidate, or interfere with a facility because such facility provides, quote-unquote, reproductive health services. The act also includes damage or destruction to a place of religious worship. And what does intimidate or interfere mean? Couldn't those terms be misused to criminalize a whole lot of otherwise innocent behavior? By its terms, therefore, the FACE Act protects and covers the dozens of pregnancy resources, resource centers and churches that have been vandalized and damaged, including at least two firebombings, since a draft of the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked in early May. But no one has been arrested yet in any of those instances, although the FBI has requested the public's help. The defendants described their peaceful protest that is involving lining a hallway of a medical building where an abortion facility is located while singing and praying. Local police arrested the group on minor trespassing charges, which had been resolved. The federal indictment, however, alleges seven of the rescuers conspired together to organize the event, and all of them acted to, quote, block the abortion facility's entry doors and prevented a patient and an employee from entering. If convicted, the seven charged with conspiracy face up to 11 years in prison and fines, up to $250,000. The others charged could face up to a 10-year prison, 10 years in prison and fines of up to $10,000. On September 23rd, the FBI showed up at the home of Mark Huck, and we talked about this last week, and arrested him over a sidewalk scuffle 
with a pro-abortion bully at an abortion facility in Philadelphia. While pro-life advocates, Christians included, should obey the law, there's a time and place for civil disobedience and protest as well, especially where the lives of preborn babies are at stake. And, and so what we have seen is pro-life activists have been peaceful. They haven't demolished a building. They haven't threw a firebomb through a window or graffitied. But that's what the pro-abortion folks have done. They've used aggressive tactics to go after pregnancy centers and pro-life organizations. And not one person has been arrested. Over 60 plus attacks have happened on pro-life organizations since May. And I haven't heard of one arrest. But the DOJ is going to arrest your grandma who's in her 80s because she was praying and singing at an abortion facility. She didn't put her hands on anybody. I mean, can, it, can an 80-something-year-old woman block you from getting somewhere? Look, this is an abuse of power. That's what it is. And so as pro-life activists, we, we have to understand what time it is. We have to understand the climate that we find ourselves in. And you can agree or disagree with someone standing outside an abortion clinic. You can agree or disagree with praying or protesting or singing. But can't we all agree that throwing firebombs through the window of an organization is bad? Can't we agree with that? Can't we agree that going to a, a nonprofit and spray painting terrible messages on their building is bad? But no, in today's climate, what we see is the ones that get arrested are those that would pray. Those that would say that baby inside the womb is, in fact, a unique individual created by God that deserves protection. Now, we're going to arrest those folks and not just arrest them. We're going to come with guns drawn. We're going to be in body armor. We're going to scare their kids. We're going to scare their family. We're going to demand answers, and we're going to haul them away. And here we have an 80-plus-year-old woman that, that if she finds her way to jail and somebody asks her, what are you in for, her answer is going to be, I prayed and I sang. And I erred on the side of life. That's all. Is that... When, when, when this FACE Act was passed in 1994, is that what they had in mind? Is it? But you see, a hundred days from Roe being overturned, and right around that you have a pro-life activist in, in Pennsylvania arrested. A hundred days after Roe v. Wade is overturned, and right after that you have 
11 pro-life activists that protested at an abortion facility in Tennessee arrested. Is that coincidence? Is that strategy? Was that the plan all along? Let's put fear into these pro-life folks so they'll shut their mouth. Is that the goal? Again, I think this is not going to play the way they want it to play. You, You have a court... And you have a trial with an 80-plus-year-old grandma that says, I was praying and singing because I believe that this facility is ending the life of humans. How do you think that's going to play out? We're going to throw her in prison? We're going to fine her $250,000 or more? This is why we stand. This is why we speak out. We'll be back. As we continue, what I want to do right now is look around the country, okay? So sometimes I will I will look uh, at what's happening in Tennessee because that's my home. Uh, but right now I want to look at what's happening around the country with abortion and the midterms that are coming up. So abortion rights has emerged. This is over at CBS News. Abortion rights have emerged among the top issues motivating voters this election cycle. Obviously, after Roe was overturned, there are folks that are fired up about this particular issue. The November elections will decide which party controls the House and Senate. And in Senate races in Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, voters who rank the issue as very important favor Democratic candidates over their Republican opponents. This was uh, shown in recent polls conducted by CBS News. But in five other states, the issue of abortion will be directly before voters when they head to the polls in November and, in addition to casting their votes, for federal and state offices, they'll weigh in on a ballot initiative that seek to either protect the right to abortion or restrict access. Amendments to state constitutions to either enshrine or restrict abortion access limit state lawmakers' abilities to pass new abortion measures. And while some state courts have interpreted state constitutions as protecting abortion rights, those decisions can be overturned. Constitutional amendments, though, would explicitly declare the respective state constitutions protect or do not protect the right to an abortion. Kansas was the first state to put the question of abortion rights before voters after the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade when it included on the ballot for the August primaries a proposed constitutional amendment removing the right to an abortion from the Kansas Constitution. That that measure was rejected uh, and abortion is still preserved in the state constitution there in Kansas. Come November, voters in three states, California, Michigan, and Vermont, will decide whether to enshrine abortion rights in their respective state constitutions, while in two others, Kentucky and Montana, proposals on the ballot seek to limit abortion rights. So here's what we're looking at. In California, known as Proposition 1, the measure, if approved, would amend the California Constitution to include the right to reproductive freedom, which includes the right to choose to have an abortion and the right to contraceptives. If approved by voters, a new section will be added to the state constitution that says the state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom in their most intimate decisions, which includes their fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose or refuse contraceptives. Now, the interesting thing is California, Governor Newsom, requiring everybody to get shots and do all the things because bodily autonomy means one thing for one thing, but not when it comes to abortion. I'm not going to go off on that tangent. I'm just saying these are the things that we're seeing across the board. 
And abortion involves not just one life, but two lives. But even if the initiative is rejected by voters, abortion will remain legal in California. The state's highest court has recognized the right to an abortion under the state constitution since 1969. And abortion is protected under state law. In Michigan, this is a big one. This is one that, that I've been paying attention to because Michigan traditionally has been at least somewhat conservative. I've even been texting friends up there going, what is happening? What is happening in Michigan? Michigan, Governor Whitmer is, seems to be leading in the, in the polls, and uh, it, it's just an interesting thing that's happening uh, up north. Michigan's ballot initiative, Proposal 3, proposes amending the state constitution to establish a new individual right to, quote, reproductive freedom. The measure would include the following. Establish the right to make and carry out all decisions about pregnancy, among them prenatal care, childbirth, postpartum care, contraception, abortion, and infertility. Allow the state to regulate abortion after fetal viability, generally between 22 to 24 weeks of pregnancy, but not prohibit abortion if it is medically needed to protect a patient's life or physical or mental health. Notice that. They added the mental health in there. Forbid prosecution of an individual for exercising their new established right to reproductive freedom or an individual helping a pregnant woman. Invalidate existing state laws that conflict with the constitutional amendment. The Reproductive Freedom for All campaign led the signature drive to get the initiative on the November ballot, but Michigan's four-member board uh, canvassers deadlocked in August over allowing the measure to be included. The board's two Democrats voted in favor, while the two Republicans opposed putting the proposed constitutional amendment on the ballot. The Reproductive Freedom for All campaign then appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court, which in September ordered the initiative to be placed on the November ballot. While Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, supports abortion rights, the state has, one on the book, has on the books a law from 1931 that makes performing an abortion a felony in most instances. The ban lay dormant for nearly 50 years uh, since 1973, obviously when Roe was, over, or when Roe was put in place, it lay dormant, uh, but now it is going to be put back in place if this initiative fails. Though Michigan Attorney General vowed not to enforce the pre-Roe ban, Planned Parenthood of Michigan and an abortion provider in the state filed a lawsuit in April arguing the 1931 law is unconstitutional, which it's not, but that's what they're arguing. And then we move to Vermont. Vermont is proposing amendment to the state constitution that would establish the right to personal reproductive autonomy. The initiative, named Article 22, states that an individual's rights to personal reproductive autonomy is central to the liberty and dignity to determine one's own life course. It shall not be denied or infringed unless justified by a compelling state interest achieved by the least restrictive means. Abortion is still legal in Vermont as the state legislature passed and the governor signed in 2019. Both chambers of the state legislature again approved the proposal this year, paving the way for the ballot initiative to be put before the voters next month. Now in Kentucky, our friends to the north... Kentucky voters will decide in November whether to amend the state constitution to declare it does not protect the right to an abortion and to prohibit state funding for abortion. Constitutional Amendment 2 asks voters whether they favor changing the Kentucky constitution to create a new section that states that to protect human life, nothing in this constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of abortion. Kentucky's Republican-controlled General Assembly approved in 2021 a measure to put the proposed constitutional amendment to voters, the state legislature also approved a trigger law banning nearly all abortions in the state in the event of Rose reversal. Abortion clinics challenged both restrictions, and in July, a state court judge blocked the state from enforcing the two measures. 
finding they likely violate the right to privacy and self-determination protected by the Kentucky Constitution. Uh, but a Kentucky appeals court reinstated the abortion bans, rendering most abortions illegal in the state for now. Now to Montana. Montana voters will weigh in on a legislative referendum adopting the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which declares infants born alive, including after an abortion, are legal persons. Now, why is that a crazy thing? So if a baby survives an abortion, we're having to now enshrine that it has rights, that it's an actual person. What are we doing? The measure states a born-alive infant who is one who breathes, has a beating heart, or has a definite movement of voluntary muscles after the complete expulsion or extraction from the mother. The proposal also establishes that a born-alive infant is entitled to medically appropriate care and treatment. That should happen anyway. We should not have to have a law that says that, but that's where we are in society. If approved by voters, the law would take effect January 1 and medical providers found guilty of violating the measure would face a fine of up to $50,000 or up to 20 years in state prison. Montana law allows abortions to be performed up to fetal viability, and the state Supreme Court held in 1999 that the Montana Constitution's right of individual privacy includes a right to procreative autonomy that protects the right to an abortion. The state legislature enacted numerous abortion limits in 2021, including a 20-week abortion ban. Restrictions on medication abortion and an ultrasound requirement. But the Montana Supreme Court in August upheld a lower court ruling that temporarily boxed the three restrictions while proceedings continue. A 2016 analysis from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention examining infant deaths for the 12-year period from 2003 to 2014, where the death certificate mentions the code for termination of pregnancy, found that 143 could be definitively classified as involving an induced termination. The terms reported on death certificates that indicate an induced termination of pregnancy range from abortion, from maternal medical reasons, to attempted self-abortion, to elective abortion, to induced loss of pregnancy. Additionally, there are existing laws on the books at the federal and state levels that protect infants as soon as they're born and likely apply to medical providers who withhold care. So that gives you kind of a look across the country. And the reason I want to do that is because this is what overturning Roe did. It takes it from a federal issue to a state issue. So federally, for 50 years, because of Roe, you could get an abortion. Now, each state could try to put restrictions in place, and it would get caught up in the courts. And now what we're finding is we're seeing states make a move. States like California going all in. We need all the abortions. States like Kentucky saying we don't want any abortions. States like Montana saying... Hey, if a baby survives an abortion, they deserve care. States like Vermont saying we need all the abortions. That is what we're going to see. It goes from a federal issue to a state and local issue. So your, your state offices are going to matter. Your state house, your state senate, your governor, the state courts, all those things are going to matter. And, and, and then when we look at, for, so what does this mean federally? It means yeah, at some point, if, if D.C. changes, you could see Roe codified. If, if at some point you see in D.C. a supermajority of pro-abortion proponents and a president that is pro-abortion, you could see Roe codified. But on the other hand, if you see a supermajority of pro-life folks in the House and Senate and a super 
uh, or a pro-life president, you could see a 15-week ban codified. But also at a federal level, what we have to understand is they are using the power that they have to silence pro-life activists. So we're facing it when it comes to articles. We're, We're facing it when they change the language from heartbeat to cardiac activity. We're facing it when they say a conservative-leaning court because they want to say that it's illegitimate. We're facing it when we're seeing all these things, and now we're facing it when they're saying, hey, you need to shut up or we're going to arrest you. And so at some point, we have to get to a place where we're willing to stand boldly for life. But it has gone from a federal issue to a state and local issue. In Tennessee, we have made that change. We have said no abortions here. But it's not just us standing strong. It's our politicians that have been standing strong in a row era. They need to stay strong in a post-row era. Hopefully I'll see some of them this evening as I'm going to the Right to Life banquet. Because we're going to hold them accountable. Stay strong in this moment. We need you to. We'll be back. So as we finish up today, hopefully you got a good glimpse into what's happening here in the state, what's happening around the country when we look at the issue of life and abortion. Look, you know, a lot of folks thought, okay, Rose overturned, you know, let's move on. Nothing else, nothing left to do. Uh, we certainly celebrate. That's a huge, 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 huge monumental uh, shift for our country. But it just shifted it to the states. And now the work to be done in the states. And, and here we, we have to understand we can't just take states for granted either. Michigan for a long time have been you know, conservative and pro-life. And, and they're at a place right now where that could shift, that could change. It could become the California <laughs> of the northern part of our country. I mean, it is, it, that is where we're at. If, if they pass this proposition or referendum or whatever they're calling it, they will be very extreme when it comes to abortion in the state of Michigan. So it matters. We can't just take it for granted. Just like in Tennessee, we have a law in the books that, that has outlawed abortion, but we can't take that for granted. That could change. We have to stay engaged, involved. And, and even though sometimes it's going to feel difficult, Oh, well, what if, you know, if I say this, I, I, you know, they, they might say this, or if I do this, then, then they may, they have a power, they have authority. What are they going to do? Look, we're going to err on the side of life. That's just the truth. Never going to apologize for that. But a few weeks ago, I, I asked the question, when is the right time to do the right thing? We got to answer that question. When is the right time to do the right thing? Can you imagine being one of the agents that arrested that 80-plus-year-old woman? When is the right time to do the right thing? When are local authorities going to step in? When is the right time to do the right thing? Again, no one has been arrested for attacking pregnancy centers. You haven't heard that in the news. We still don't know who leaked the decision from the Supreme Court. 
the guy that threatened to murder and assassinate Brett Kavanaugh. You heard about him for a few days and they moved on from that. Folks out protesting outside of Amy Coney Barrett's home. You're not hearing anything about them. But, you know, we got an 80 plus year old grandma that we got to throw her away and lock the, you know, lock her up and throw away the key. Because she dared to pray and sing. And so as we as we think through this and as we think about the the issue at hand, are we going to stand firm? Are we going to be bold? You don't have to be a jerk. I don't you know, I'm not saying that at all. You don't have to be violent. None of the pro-life activists that were arrested were violent. They weren't violent when they were arrested, and they weren't violent in protesting. Because that ain't gonna get any ain't gonna get you anywhere. So as we think through this, these are the things that we have to to understand that's happening. But also we have to understand what's happening around our country, what's happening in these different states. When it comes to local legislation, when it comes to referendums, when it comes to constitutional amendments. And frankly, in some of these areas, the, the pro-lifers need to be more aggressive with their funding, with their campaigns, with their advocacy, because the abortion industry is paying for it, spending millions, putting ads on TV, spreading misinformation and, and untruths. I'm not saying that we need to spread misinformation and untruths, but we need to correct the record bring clarity, speak truth, empower and embolden voters, and err on the side of life. You do that, you're never going to have to apologize. Because the reality is the bulk of the populace are a lot more closer to me and my position on life and abortion than they are with the abortion industry. The bulk of the, the populace do not believe that abortion is a vehicle to help students thrive and succeed. But are we messaging that? Are we articulating that? We do our best to do that here. We got to keep at it. It's worth it, folks. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>